Who the bloody hell's that? Should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello and welcome to chapter 44. Yes, you heard it, folks. Chapter 44 of the Corona Diaries. Gosh. And I'm sat looking at the legend that is Steve H. And it's 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 afternoon, H. We're doing a we're doing a Monday afternoon gig, aren't we? You do cheer me up calling me a legend. <laughs> don't, don't bloody feel that one. <laughs> um Yes, it's what was the question? It, I was just saying it's it's an afternoon recording and it's and it's nice to be talking to you in the afternoon. Yes, yes, we had to move it because uh, I went for a walk in the park with Sophie this morning. Oh, oh, she nice. So, yeah, I didn't ask you. I didn't ask you actually earlier on. Was was grandson there as well? Was Ronnie there as well? No, no, he was at nursery. He was, was at he? nursery on Mondays and Fridays. So. Um, Yes, that's that's why we managed it. Yeah, I think I'm going walking with him on Wednesday. Right. My life is nice. packed. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to do... Actually, before we start, before we start, we need to shout out to... He was called Tom, wasn't he? What was Tom's surname? McGreed or something? McCraith, perhaps. Yes, yes, yes. indeed. What did he say? Um, he He reacted to our latest... Um, outpouring. You reacted to TCD forty three by calling it gold drivel. Mm, good t shirt. I like that. Another cracking t shirt. Another for the cracking t shirt. An hour and twenty one minutes of gold drivel. You called it. <laughs> Thanks for that, Tom. Something to catch in your lobster bib. Well, it'd be gold dribble, wouldn't it? But you know <laughs> gold what I mean. Dribble. <laughs> right, anyway, on to 44, and we're going to do something a little bit off-kilter this week. Mm. Um, and, and it comes from, every once in a while I come up with a title, and then we end up doing an episode just because I, well, really just because I quite like the title. And the title I've come up with this week, as you all will have seen, is uh, And We Will Always Have Paris. And that's because the diary section um, that we would have covered today is all about Paris. But what we've decided to do is, because the diary section is longer than we would normally read, what we're going to do is we're going to do two segments of diary today. So we're going to do a little couple of days of diary, uh, and then we're going to have a chat about it. Then we're going to do the second half of the diary reading, and then we're going to have a chat about that. So actually, we're going to end up jumping into diary really, really early, so we can have the conversation, if that makes sense, about what's in the diary. It'll all make sense when it goes together. When it's edited together, it'll be seamless. Hang on, I'm going to take my jumper off. <laughs> right, okay. I'll pad a bit <laughs> while just, H is taking his jumper on off. You just So, um, and it, we, so we're on the Braves tour still, and we've we've rolled into we've rolled into France. I think we're going to start off finishing finishing up in Toulouse, but then we're going to head to to Paris. 
And the reason why I thought this was a good idea is because quite a lot went off in Paris in those in those few days. And of course, in a minute, I'm going to nod to H to answer the question. He's not got his headphones on, so we can't hear what the hell I'm banging on about. No, they're disintegrating. I'm just fixing them now. The jumper's oh, yeah? off. The headphones <laughs> are just being rebuilt. Ah, oh, rebuilding headphones. There we are. But it was a big few days in Paris. There's a lot of talking points, including Dave Megan rolling into town. Mm, it's a lovely including, Dave. Uh, s- singles from Brave, including your mum and dad rolling into town. Uh, including uh, some quite eventful evening entertainment. So we're going to cover all those bits. But to help you, we're going to do a bit of diary, bit of chat, bit of diary, bit of chat. Did that all make sense? So, So we're going to go straight away now to the first bit of diary. Mm -hmm. And then we'll come back and we'll have a chat about those first couple of days. Let me take you to Toulouse, Lyon. And Paris, mes amis. It's French, that is. Monday, 25th of April. Toulouse, day off. Got up late to discover it was still raining. Bugger. I thought we were more or less guaranteed some good weather at the end of April in the south of France. Dizzy was up and about before me and decided to have a mooch round the shops while I got myself together. She took a couple of things to the dry cleaners for me and also made an appointment for me to have my hair done. What a girl. When she returned half an hour later it had stopped training and I was more or less ready. She showed me the way to the hairdressers and then went off round the town again. At lunchtime, half past three, we had disastrous ham rolls at a brasserie in the Place du Capitaine. Spent much of the afternoon trying to find a particular shoe shop and trying to find the dry cleaners where my clothes were. I can't get over the standard of the shops here. The clothes, the shoes, the children's stuff, the interior design, all of a quality of creativity and taste which in England would be rare. No wonder everyone here seems to possess inherent style. It's quite difficult to find duff stuff. We finally found the shoe shop and bought Niall some tin-tin palladium shoes and Sophie some flowery espadrilles. In the evening, we ate at the hotel brasserie and drank nightcap hot chocolates in the hotel bar. Tuesday, 26th of April. Toulouse Salle des Fêtes. Got up around 11, showered and had breakfast in the room before going out walking again, mooching around the shops with Dizzy. She was trying to find a little something to take back for Amy and Holly, my nieces. We chanced upon a shop full of buttons of every kind. I love button shops, so we chose some big mother-of-pearl ones to go on Dizzy's Macintosh. Had coffee in a lovely little square round the corner from the hotel, next to a fountain on the cobblestones. I fantasised about having an apartment here over the shops. Diz pointed out that we couldn't bring the children up in an apartment. There's a part of me that regrets never having had a flat in the centre of a town. The old saying isn't true. You can miss things that you've never had. We made our way back to the hotel so that I could pack in time to leave for sound check. I'm going to go overnight to Leon with the crew. 
Another minibus had been delivered to replace the one that kept breaking down, so we all climbed in and set off for the venue, which was about 25 minutes' drive out of the town. The venue was a modern theatre, a bit like a sports hall with a stage, and perfect for our needs. This is France again. And all the crew seemed happy, apart from Alan and Tim, who were going down with some plague or other. It was a sunny afternoon, so I sat outside catering while Dis took a walk round to the local shops, still looking for prezzies. After soundcheck, we returned to the hotel to relax. When we got back to the show, Nick said it was probably unwise for me to travel on the crew bus, as there seemed to be a risk of catching crew bus plague. Tonight's show was to be the first time Dis attended the Brave tour, so I naturally wanted it to be a special one. I never know what shape my voice is in until I hit the stage, so I had my fingers crossed. As it turned out, the two days off had done the trick, and I sang really well. I dedicated waiting to happen to her during the encores. I don't remember dedicating a song to her before, but in the bar last night she was complaining, in jest, that I never sing to her, so I thought I should make amends. The fact is, the song's about her. Afterwards... She confessed she cried all the way through it. Gerard Drouhard, our promoter, cracked open a couple of bottles of champagne before I showered and signed stuff outside. Returned to the hotel and had a beer in the bar with Nick B. He had been here before with Bowie and was reminiscing about the tour barber coats which each member of the crew had been given. Nick had the job of handing them out here, but they were in a box full of oil. Barbers are made from oiled material to make them waterproof. He said there was goo everywhere. Diz was tired and went straight to bed. It had been a good night. Wednesday, 27th of April. Lyon, Transbordeur. Got up and checked out of the Hotel L'Opera at considerable cost. Said goodbye to Dizzy. She was flying back to England with Joe Rothery and driving the return trip to Yorkshire to pick up Sophie and Nile. It's going to take her all day and I wished I could help. Climbed aboard the new replacement minibus. Unfortunately, it's more basic and not capable of going very fast. It took six hours to get to Lyon. I spent most of the journey reading or trying to sleep and listening to the rest of the band complaining about the transport. We eventually arrived at the venue around four o'clock, feeling somewhat travel-weary. Dave Megan was standing in the hall, sizing up the stage when I walked in. It was great to see him and once more be in the presence of the architect of our best work. Priv was behind the desk. I said hello to him and had a moan about the new bus, which would make a better hot dog van than a band minibus. I shall decorate it accordingly, he announced, and strode off purposefully, clutching a roll of gaffer tape. Chatted to Dave M while we ate dinner in catering. Dave watched the sound check, making notes. He's going to be recording our shows in Paris and needs to know the cues. After sound check, he said he thought I was singing well. Little compliments like these actually make an enormous difference to my state of mind, especially when they come from people whose sincerity is beyond question. We decided to return to the hotel by cab, but by the time we arrived there wasn't enough time for my ritual pre-show snooze. I called Yorkshire to see if Dizzy had arrived yet, but apparently she had called to say she was delayed in traffic. 
My mum sounded well and said that Sophie and Niall had behaved wonderfully. Niall had slept through the night every night. It's a miracle. The show was great until the second encore when we were beset by technical problems. The guitar followed by the keyboards, which took all the wind out of our sails. Nonetheless, the audience seemed happy. I regret the fact that I just didn't have my usual energy because of having had no chance to really relax today. After the show, we went straight back to the hotel and I had a drink in the bar with Dave M and John A before retiring to my room, which for some reason had a jacuzzi in the bathroom. I still hadn't got out of my stage stuff, so I unstrapped myself. Years of abuse on stage have taken their toll on my ankles and knees, so I strapped them up before the shows and bubbled around in the bath for a while before going to bed. Couldn't sleep, my neck was hurting. I had strained it again. And for the first time this week, we're back. And um, my first question's got to be, it's not quite Paris related, this one. My first question's going to be, um, you seem to have a very nice time in Toulouse. You like Toulouse, don't you? I do like Toulouse very much. I've not been for a while now, but uh, it's one of those cities that just seems to be absolutely rammed with interesting stuff. Um, really nice shops, nice clothes shops, nice kind of antique objet d'art interior, designy kind of stuff. Lots of lovely cafes, little sandwich shops, and just what? A city should be really, mm. um, and yet so few of our cities here in in England are like that. You know, they're just pronto print, aren't they? And boots and estate a- estate agents, and uh, mm. you know. Uh, but but in um, you know, and they're all they're all sort of um, franchises or chains, aren't they? Of 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 similar um, corporate um labels and so you you can you can go from one city to another in England and you you're struggling to tell between them in terms of the shops and the the kind of experiences available but it, but but France is very different I, I think they must just have a different kind of business rate structure or something because because independent interest in little businesses seem to be able to endure in the French cities in a way that they don't much here. Um, I suppose there's a handful. I mean, if if you go to Bath in the West Country here, that's got lots of interesting knick-knacky sort of places. And, and, and Toulouse is like that. Um, it's a lot bigger than Bath. But but it's it's just it just seems to be rammed with interesting things. And there's just a really nice atmosphere there. And it's one of the few places I've been over the many years of travelling where I've thought, do you know what, I could definitely live here, you know, and I wish I had. Hmm. Well, you mentioned that. You mentioned that about living, you you, you kind of nodded, nod and wink towards the fact you would have liked to have lived in a city, a city apartment living. Yeah, well, you know, when I was younger perhaps and single, if I could, you know, I, ne- I never had that experience of living in 
in a big city uh, back in the days when I had the the freedom and energy to to have enjoyed it and coped with it. Uh, these days I have neither the freedom nor the energy. Um, I think you know city apartment living would 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 be would would be wasted on me these days because I'd probably just sit watching old repeats of Endeavour on the telly while <laughs> while the night life was raging across the street. You know, I'd be <laughs> old repeats of Endeavour. <laughs> It'd be on Foiled War next. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was funny because when I read the section of the diary and and you start to wax lyrical about um, the button shop, <laughs> and yeah. I thought to myself, I thought to myself, if there was anybody in my life who would like a button shop, I know exactly who that would be, and mm. it would be you. Yeah. Oh, I love a button shop, um, and I I absolutely. I mean, perhaps slightly less now than I did back then, but. Um, just the idea that a button shop could exist yeah. was enough to get me through an afternoon. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, sort of sort of drift, drifting off into fantasies about what certain shirts of mine would look like if the buttons were different, you know. Good God. <laughs> <laughs> I once bought some amazing blue... This is probably in here somewhere in the diary. I bought some... I bought some mother of pearl, blue, blue mother of pearl buttons in a in a shop in Argentina and and cut all the buttons off one of my white shirts and put them all on. And it, they were just splendid. But then, of course, you'd, you'd put them in the laundry in a hotel and they'd, they'd run it through a roller and they'd just come back, <laughs> just come back utterly destroyed. Oh no, that's seventy five dollars worth of buttons, wrecked. <laughs> of all the things I expected of life on the road, <laughs> my buttons being wrecked wasn't what I was expecting. It's happened to me. I'm mm. here to tell you. Here to tell you. Um, I, I, the other thing we cover very briefly in that because it carries on from last week, and there's a, it means that we can correct ourselves last week. Because it turns out it wasn't hot dogs gaffer taped on the side of the van. It was kebabs. <laughs> it was kebabs. I realised that afterwards. <laughs> Stavros which, which actually, kebabs. The idea of a runny... I don't know what's worse, a runny hot dog or a runny kebab. Yeah, they're runny, but yummy. <laughs> <laughs> we drove all over France with that on the with side on the of the side. van. Anyway, the big question from this section of diary is that Dave Megan rolls into town because you're you end up recording um, Brave uh, in its entirety, and I believe it makes its way onto the Made Again album. Apparently, it did. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm not very good with all of that. You know, I'm not bad with the studio albums, but the live albums, forget it. Um, that they all merge together in my in my head, and I don't know what's on any of them. Um, I never listen to them because um, well, I never listen to anything. You know, I don't I don't listen to the studio stuff because all I hear is what's wrong with it, and the live albums are worse because there's much more wrong with the live albums normally. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's nothing. There's nothing to hear except what went wrong with it on the live <laughs> albums. Um, 
So whereas if you're a fan, you can kind of celebrate that edginess and uncertainty. <laughs> if you're in the band, it's torture. So I don't listen to a lot of live work um, of me singing out a tune or, you know, things being wrong. Um, so, but yes, I do remember I do remember Dave recording that brave performance at La Cigale. I remember being there for three nights. I kind of remember the theatre. We haven't been back to La Cigale. We we've been back on the, on that stretch of 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 um, clubs on um, in Montmartre, down by uh, the Pigalle where all the hookers hang out, down by the um, the uh, Moulin Rouge. It's just it's just across this just well it's on the same side of the street as the Moulin Rouge and the Elise Montmartre is there as well we've played there a lot more since we've not been back to La Cigale but that was that was a nice little theatre mm. that you know proper Toulouse-Lautrec dance hall theatre from the um, the golden age the golden age yeah and was the I guess the decision it was an easy decision to get Dave in to do that then simply because he'll have been so close to the album that he'll have been the, the you know it's not like you've got to explain the material to him is it no and also he'd recorded rattle and hum for you too yes so he knew what he was doing yes. with a i mean he, he it was can in a way that was his his greater area of expertise was recording live shows He'd had a lot of experience of that and really relished it. And so, he, you know, that along with the fact that he produced the album made him the perfect person to do it. Because Rattle and Hum's a, a reasonable thing to have on your CV, isn't it? Yeah, it's a great sounding record. Yeah. Really fantastic record. So he had a he had a little mobile studio, I imagine. He either parked up somewhere fairly close by and had a little... Yeah, there was a mobile called the Manor Mobile, which which was, you know, the mobile version of Manor Studios, which was owned by Richard Branson way back in the day. Um, they'd got a, a studio called the Manor Mobile that, that you could hire, and a lot of bands used to hire that if they wanted to record anything live. And, you, you know, these days you just take a couple of racks in that take up almost no space and will record everything. But back then you needed great big two-inch tapes and mm. expensive Swiss tape recording multi-track machines um, in kind of special vehicles with, with soft suspension and God knows what. So Dave was parked out immediately outside the theatre, which... Um, is a nightmare in itself because that part of Paris, you need all sorts of permits to put anything anywhere. I think even if you stop walking in the street, you you know, somebody slams a ticket on you for standing still in that part of Paris. And whenever we whenever we play on that strip, which is often, I mean, relatively often, obviously not this year, um, you can't leave the tour bus there. So there's this mad scramble, like 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 um, like a fire drill in a in a submarine, where everybody has to pile out of the bus with all their shit and their bags and their coats and their. Can you imagine what a nightmare that is for someone <laughs> like me, trying to vacate a vehicle quickly with all my stuff, without either losing it during the process or leaving half of it is 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 hellish. 
Uh, and you multiply that by 15, you've just got 15 bleary-eyed, hairy-arsed blokes all trying to get through one narrow door into a Paris street in under two minutes before the bus driver gets a, a, a fined 300 quid. Uh, so that's always a bit tense. Yeah. Uh, but somehow Megan got permission to um, to leave the minor mobile on the street, probably applied for it six months before and paid someone a small fortune. He's Irish. They can always work out a way of doing these things. <laughs> they have this knack, don't they? <laughs> yes. <laughs> of making these things happen. <laughs> Lavinia's cousin. <laughs> Some some kind of deal must have been struck yeah. somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. No, it's um. It was there a reason? I don't, I don't suppose if you remember, is the reason why Paris was picked then? Because theoretically, that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Actually, somewhere relatively difficult to to operate in. Um, mm. It might but, have been where it was on the tour. You know, it might have been sufficiently into the tour for us to feel like we we'd have blown the bugs out of it and known what yeah. we were doing by then. Uh, also, because the the Paris audience is kind of legendary, yeah. for for our band, I mean, incre- incredible vibration that that they they seem to create um, was something worth capturing. Mm. Well, it did get captured, and it ended up on on Made Again. Or one of the nights ended up on Made Again, uh, though it might have been a comp of the three nights. I don't know. I don't know. What Dave I think he probably uh, did use, you know, use all of it, just grab the best bits and yeah. glued it all together. So if you're out of tune, if you're out of tune on a particular track on on that, then you've been out, of, you know, you were worse on the other two nights. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best of the three. <laughs> uh, I yeah, love you, that. You I think that's that. bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right. Well, in which case then... Let's let's nip off for section two of the diary, and then we've got mm-hmm. a few questions for the other side of the other side of of section two, uh, which continues in Paris, uh, takes us through actually the recording of the gigs and a few other bits and pieces and some legendary uh, evenings entertainment. So I'm going to pass it back to you. Okay, here comes section two. <laughs> Thursday, 28th of April. Paris, La Cigale. Checked out of the Royal Hotel and jumped into a cab to the station. After yesterday's long drive in the hot dog van, now suitably decorated, Stavros kebabs, they're runny but yummy, in Priv's best gaffer tape font, we had charitably decided that Nick should drive to Paris while we take the TGV, the high-speed train. It transported us almost silently through hundreds of miles of beautiful French countryside in comfort while we chatted to John A. and Gérard Rouard, promoter, who had joined us in first class. We were in Paris by 1.15, quicker than flying, and we jumped into cabs and checked into the Holiday Inn, Place de la République. At 2.30, a masseuse had been arranged to massage my neck, so I lay on the bed while she did her best to unknot my upper back amid endless ringing of the phone. Thank you, Catherine. She wasn't cheap. Left the lobby at 3.30 and drove over to La Cigale, 
a small theatre in the Montmartre district. The Manor Mobile was parked outside across the street, Dave Megan's place of work for the forthcoming three days. La Cigale reminds me of an old music hall with balconies which sweep round to the wings. I could imagine Lautrec sketching dancing girls in voluminous skirts and frilly underdresses here. I later found out that he actually did. Our dressing room was on the third floor, a testing stagger up wooden stairs, especially after a show and two encores. Had salmon for dinner in catering and sound checked. It took a while as they were also checking tie lines to the mobile outside. Hung around in the dressing room trying to relax and chatting to John about the inexplicably low midweek position of alone again in the lap of luxury. EMI released it this week and so far it's in the chart at 56, which is tragic. We eventually hit the stage to a sold-out crowd, all three nights are sold out, trying to forget, but bear in mind, the tape recorders in the street. It was, for me, a truly special night. We played and sang with a rare combination of precision and spirit, and the audience were incredibly passionate and appreciative. I didn't see Dave M until the following day when he agreed he'd got a lot of great moments on tape. At midnight tonight, it would be Gerard's birthday, so he had booked a room in a high-class restaurant across town. We ate and drank the best of French cuisine while being entertained by raconteur Michael Dini, who, incidentally, is representing the Lloyds' names in their high court battle to prove fraud in the recent Lloyds' collapse. He's a straight and demure-looking chap, but very funny, and made more so by being possessed of a bad stammer, of which he's not the least bit self-conscious. I told them to... M- m- I told them to... M- fuck off. Etc. As a young rebellious student, he once handcuffed himself to the steering wheel of the Springbok rugby team's tour bus and then drove the vehicle away in an attempt to kidnap the entire team as a noble anti-apartheid gesture. Needless to say, he barely escaped the beating with his life when things understandably turned ugly and 20 or so pissed-off professional rugby players set about him. Tethering himself to the steering wheel had been a grave error. Tonight, he chatted affably about being stranded in a police station in Philadelphia with Paul McGuinness, U2's manager, after their limo driver was arrested, about being thrown out of a nightclub in Nice, about whipping in the Jesuit church, sexual perversion at Eton, his High Court Lloyds battle, a certain very famous rock band's end-of-tour brothel parties, not you 2 by the way, and cautionary notes with regard to making love on amyl nitrate. We sung happy birthday to Gerard, ate birthday cake and went off to bed. Friday, 29th of April, Paris, La Cigale. Rose around 11, showered and ordered coffee on room service. It was another beautiful sunny day, so I phoned my old chum, Sylvie Hendrick, who used to work at EMI in Brussels, but now works at Polygram in Paris, and we met up for lunch. I took a cab to her office, and then we walked up to Montmartre and ate salad at one of the street restaurants in the sunshine, chatting about music and Paris. Montmartre is a wonderful place to watch the world go by on a sunny day. Street life is colourful. 
A rich spectacle of bohemian passers-by, dark, mysterious Algerians, modelly girls, street children and the ever-present motley selection of dogs sniffing, scratching and squatting. We walked back down through lawns and flower beds where hosepipes sprayed water against dripping trees, past the famous carousel of circus-colourful prancing horses and cockerels and a park full of preoccupied children, and on to La Cigale, where Sylvie left me to return to work while I went inside to sound check and get ready for show number two. For some reason, this one, for me, didn't quite have the magic of last night, although certain moments were undoubtedly better. I found the audience more boisterous than last night, this one had sold out first, but not quite as soulful. I wasn't as focused singing, and I think the band somehow seemed a little more self-conscious. If this sounds less than enthusiastic, it's only a comparison to last night. Normally tonight would have stood out as an amazing evening. Paris usually spoils us. After the show, I showered and joined Steve R at Les Bains Douches, along with Holly from EMI France and Alex from Rondor. Being Saturday night, the club was stacked with Paris's beautiful people, all dressed to kill and trying to outpose one another. How can that be fun? Holly seemed tired and disinterested. She's probably dragged here several times a month. I ate asparagus and had a couple of obscenely overpriced beers before exhaustion, boredom and the ever-present consciousness of tomorrow night's gig drove me back to the hotel. Saturday, 30th of April. Paris, La Cigale. Woke up to yet another gorgeous sunny morning and opened my windows to let in the Paris morning air, which seems to be much less polluted than I remember from my last visit. Mooched around and called my mum and dad, who were staying at the Holiday Inn at the airport. They were out, so I left a message. They've popped over to do a little sightseeing and come to the Paris show, so I will meet up with them later. Went walkabout in Paris and enjoyed a spot of late breakfast in the sunshine. Made my way over to La Cigale around four in the afternoon to discover mum and dad in catering. They'd been to Versailles in the morning and on the way back the coach had passed by La Cigale so they'd got off to come looking for me. Ate Mexican chicken with my mum while the girls made my dad an omelette and listened to them enthusing about the palace and gardens where they'd spent the morning. I've never been to Versailles. I was overcome with tiredness and apprehension at the sound check. My voice wasn't sounding too good, so I made my excuses to all and went to the crew bus for an hour's sleep. Woke up feeling much better. Poor Wes, our opening act, had completely lost his voice and couldn't even talk. He'd got record company people who'd flown in specially for tonight's show to see him play. What a nightmare, and how typical. I wished him the best of luck, and from the high-altitude dressing rooms, I could hear his set drifting upstairs. It didn't sound too bad, and there was much cheering from the crowd. I wondered how my voice would hold out. Well, in the event, it held out, but it was a little scratchy. I felt pretty good in myself, though, and I was back inside most of the songs. Dave later confirmed this. The attitude from the band seemed more spirited than last night, and I much preferred this audience. I should point out that having since spoken to several members of the fan club, their opinion was that number two was the best of the three nights. 
what can you do with the punters? Afterwards, I chatted to my mum and dad. Nick had managed to sort out a couple of balcony seats for them, and they said they were treated like royalty by the surrounding audience. Merci beaucoup, mes amis. My mum confessed to having cried all the way through the show. Said hello to my old friend Sally from Balham, who now lives with a French artist called Dominic on a houseboat on the Seine. I had called and left a message earlier, so I was pleased that they managed to make it over. Nick ordered a cab to take my folks home, and I made them a present of my EMI Welcome bottle of champagne. I showered and signed stuff at the door. There were still about 50 kids hanging around. I gave my beads away to a chap who said his brother was in hospital dying of AIDS. They were a present from Carlotta in Rome. He's probably going to need more than beads, poor chap. Went back to the Holiday Inn and had a beer with the French fan club before going to bed. And for the second time this episode, we're back. <laughs> and that was a bit more, a bit more Paris. Um, and I've got three questions that come out the back of uh, what we uh, what we covered there. Um, firstly, um, the single um, um, from Brave Alone again in the lap of luxury um, was released around about that time and didn't didn't do very well. Didn't didn't exactly rip the charts up. Yeah, I, I don't know what happened with that. Um, you know, you, our our fan base alone was usually enough to to stick anything we released in. A, you know, in the mid twenties. So when Alone Again the Lap of Luxury charted at fifty six, <laughs> we we were depressed. I don't, I, I I don't know what happened. Um, I thought it had a good chorus. I thought, you know, I thought people would get onto it. But when I come back to it now, I'm always struck by by how slow it is. And I think, what on earth possessed us to record it at that tempo? Um, mm. I think if it had been 20 BPM faster, it might have had a chance. But hey, 2020 hindsight. Because mm. there's not really, I mean, I, I, it sounds a terrible thing to say, I, I love the album, but I, I struggle to hear any of it as singles. In fact, to be honest, I would probably have picked Harder Harder as Love as a single if I would have you know, if it would have been me. Because mm. it has that kind of fairly hit you with square in the face guitar riff that leads you straight in. But even Hard of Love is what, six, seven minutes long? Yeah. Or our, five, our, six minutes long. Our stuff so rarely fits into any kind of time frame for, mm. for radio. Um that's the problem. We've we've had years and years. I mean, even Fantastic Place, everybody said, you know, years later, why ever didn't you release that as a single? And it's about seven minutes long. Yeah. And and to, to cut it down to even four, you'd have to destroy it. Mm. So we, we just don't see the function of that, you know, <laughs> we're just not concise. <laughs> Not concise. <laughs> it takes us a while to get going, and then it takes us a while to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Three minutes to warm us up, and at then least four take, minutes to slow us down. It takes a while to stop, yeah, we're like an oil tanker. <laughs> <laughs> 
With a single equivalent of an oil tank. There's a lot of turning of the propellers before there's any discernible movement. Which, to be fair, is what... what the, the tragedy for me in the singles, I mean, if you take No One Can Out, because that was always a tragedy, but Beautiful was a tragedy for me because that did, to me, that did seem to be right length, right song, right everything. Great guitar, lovely chatty guitar at the beginning. Great hook. Yeah, I, do, I don't know. I, I, I think it was maybe the right song at the wrong time. Wrong you know, time. The, the right song released in the jaws of, of Blur and Oasis. And yeah. You know the nineties thing, and and so we were just we just overlooked because we weren't current and cool. Mm. Maybe mm. I don't know. Yes. Knows. Well, that that that, and how does it hit you? I mean, did that re- was it a real downer for the band at that point in time? Um, does that you know what uh, Lapa Lux? Yeah. Oh God, yeah, it was terribly depressing. Um, it's like you lived. I mean. We've always lived in two separate universes, really. There's been the universe we live in, that the band live in. You know, we're in our studio creating and we're in our little universe. And then we go out on the road and we're still in our little universe and we've got our amazing fans and, we, you know, we can play quite big gigs and, and sell them straight out in various parts of the world. And everything makes sense. And then there's the rest of the world, you know. And and when you release a single, it's released into that other universe that is the rest of the world that's listening to whatever it's listening to, Kanye Bloody West or or, or Britney or Taylor Swift or or, or, or Oasis Mm. or Blur. And that's not to put any of these people down. I mean, great, great artists, a lot of them. But they're just in another universe to us, and there's no, there isn't even a, <laughs> not even the most tenuous string connects us. We're we're just orbiting the Earth, I think. Um, and as long as we remain in orbit, and everyone remains in orbit with us, it all makes sense. But whenever we get that direct connection to the world, it all seems to go horribly wrong. <laughs> Stop putting out singles. I think that's the only thing I can read into it. Well, we Don't did. We did in the end. You know, yeah. what's the point? Hmm. Um, another thing that comes out of the diary we haven't mentioned so far, and we'll we'll get onto this in more detail at a later point in time. But um, Wes John Wesley's on the on the doing support for mm. the for the gigs. Um, I mean, you mentioned a bit in the diary about he was losing his voice and 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 struggling a little bit, um, but. Um, you know he's he's been someone that's been inextricably inextricably linked to the to the story along the lines, and having met him a couple of times, a, a really smashing fella as well. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how we ended up running into him. I think he became our American guitar technician at one point. I could be wrong about this. No, actually, that's that rings a bell. Actually, I think that's how the relationship started. Um, I think he became our guitar tech somehow. Uh, somebody plugged him into it and recommended him for the gig and, and he rocked up and he was our guitar tech in America because we didn't always take our own techs to America because it used to cost, you know, we used to lose so much money, we still do, when every time uh, every time we played there. So we sometimes hire technicians stateside and um, 
that's how we got to meet Wes. And then one night um, the opening act failed to turn up and he said, oh, well, I can get up and do a set. And we went, really? And he went, well, yeah, you know, it'd be no trouble. I won't take up much space. So we said, well, all right, knock yourself out. And he, he, he got up and he was great. And we all thought, oh, he's good, isn't he? We should have him again. Um, and I think that's... I think that's what happened. We just enjoyed what he did. Um, he was never any trouble. He was always extremely polite and pleasant and nice and positive, which is, you know, what you want. Um, and no trouble on the bus either, so we stuck him on the tour bus because that was no trouble. He fitted right in. He got on with everybody. Um, and um, and then he got he got poached by Steve Wilson, I think, um, who added him to Porcupine Tree when they played live. Um, so he did quite well um, doing live work with the Porcupine Tree as their second guitarist for for a number of years. And then Steve Wilson went solo and COVID happened and I haven't seen him since. Yeah. But I, I don't think I've seen the last of it. He's, he lives in Tampa, Florida. And uh, he's made some, you know, he's made some good stuff. Hmm. Well, you did, you did BVs on one of his tracks, didn't you? I did, yeah. I just did it for the crack. Yeah. It's a really nice tune, actually. I'm trying, I was desperately trying to think what the track was called, but it's a really nice, uh, really nice tune. The, the, the backing vocals are really nice. They're like a counter melody, aren't they? I don't know. I can't remember it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really good, actually. It's, it's, um, it's, um, yeah, the, I think it's on the Emperor Falls album. Uh, but, but somebody will tell us which one it is. And, it, uh, it was a while back, wasn't it? it was a long yeah, it was a while back, yeah. Because I think Mark produced his first album, didn't he? Or, or, or one of his early albums. Yeah. <laughs> we'll leave it there, then. <laughs> Hello to Wes, if you're listening. If you're not listening, why aren't you listening, Wes? And the porpoise. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, on mm. our little Paris, um, our little Paris sort of memory lane, um, <laughs> is... Memory um, lane. I know, I know, I know, I know. Sorry, I know. I, I need, I need there to be a button shop if, I, if you're going to remember anything. Um, your mum and dad rocked uh, up. They did. I do remember that because um, there was a lot of stairs, and I remember thinking, "Bloody hell, it's typical." They come to one gig, it's four, four hundred feet in the air to the dressing room. I'm going to go wheezing up all those stairs, um, but they managed it. And uh, it was like, it was all, it was lovely to see them. Um, it was I mean, what was particularly lovely about having my mum and dad at the gigs was was that the way our fans would treat them. Mm. Um, you know, the word would go, the word would quietly go out in French, murmur, murmur, murmur. You know, maman, papa, <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, and then they'd be kind of carried around like royalty, you know, oh. and bought, bought drinks and everyone would keep asking them if they were comfortable and all right, and, you know. So so that was fantastic. It made me, you know, well, it made, it, it, it made me very proud of the fans. Hmm. And, and a nice place for them to see the band. Yeah. You know, with yeah, that, that audience. Yeah, incredible. Incredible. I, I mean, I don't know how I would feel if one of my kids was, you know, in a in a room with that that happening, uh, for their benefit and that amount of love. You, I would just sit there going, "Wow, this is wonderful," you know, because all all you really hope is that 
is that your kids will be happy and that they'll be loved and 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 so to witness that quite on that level must have been wonderful for them mm. and captured to be fair because i mean there's you know part of this live disc will probably be of that night so in some way shape or form it's been captured and it's it's there they were up they were in that space mm. yeah which is which is really quite i nice. think the first time they saw me was on a season's end tour in the Ahoy Sports Palace in um, in Rotterdam, and that was oh. ten ten or twelve thousand people in there, so that was quite an event. And they, I think, they got to watch that from a mixing desk. I think my my dad's mind was well and truly blown mm. by the just by the sheer scale of the evening. So that was, was lovely. When was the last time they saw you? Remember, I took my mum to Port Zeland. And again, she was kind of fated throughout the <laughs> everywhere she went. Yeah. yeah, she had a really good time. I think that was after my dad passed away. But I did take my mum to one of the Port Zelands, and she thought that was fantastic. Was she treated a little bit like the Queen Mother? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, people were having their photographs taken with her, and all oh. of that. You know, she was a celebrity. She loved it. Oh, I think that's really nice. Did she go full on Queen Mother? Did she have a little bottle of gin in a bag as well and just just <laughs> totally own it? <laughs> I don't know. My mother was one of those people who uh, never got drunk, you right. know, no matter how much she drank. She would drink and remain sober and then vomit, you know, and once she'd had far, far too much, she would then be sick. But she didn't have the the pleasant bit in the middle. All, all she ever had was the drinking, nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens, room spinning, I'm going to be sick. So she didn't have that, oh, I feel all right now, part, part of the drinking experience. So because of that, she she very rarely drank. Right. That's not something that's come down through the family, though, is it? It certainly hasn't. Because <laughs> just from being on the family quiz, I you can you can tell with Sue that she's you know oh, they're dreadful. She's got that in. Yes, they'll in talk about. Measure. Let alone drinking, they'll talk about drink for an hour and a half. My family, <laughs> you've only got to mention any form of alcohol, and they're off. In long rambling tales of reminiscences of, of things they have drunk and oh. how drunk they got. Oh, I need to be, and, and we need to organise that recording with Jill and Sue really, really rather quickly. <laughs> uh, it's going to be legendary, it really is. Right, well, that's us. That's us for the week. But we're going to nip off um, in a second and record the Odds and Sodcast. And there's a couple of bits from Paris that we've left to talk about in the Odds and Sods. So um, for those of you who are purple, um, look forward to uh, the Odds and Sods landing a couple of days after this. And we'll continue with a little bit more Paris on that. Um, and if you're not purple, why not? Um, you know, <laughs> easy enough to, to do. Purple, Jump yeah. on. Well worth it. Hours and hours worth of extra gold <laughs> drivel for you, if you should want yeah. it. If you have nothing in your life, we're the guys for you. Yes. If you're contemplating a jigsaw, there's better ways of spending <laughs> your time. You've got to that level. We are. We literally, we're the answer. We are. We are. We are the answer. Actually, that reminds me, we're talking to the web this week, aren't we? We are, yes. We're talking to Anne Bond from the web. Um, is that tomorrow? I think that's tomorrow, isn't oh, it? Yeah. It's a full-on week. 
It's all going know. on. Full on TCD this week. Mm. Okay, we'll have to look forward to that. So mm. we're going to be, you know, we're going to be famous. Well, I think you're famous already. I don't feel famous. I feel like a bloke in an attic. Well, technically you're that as well. <laughs> right, I'm going to leave you to your attic. Well, I'll see you again in about 30 seconds. But for the purposes oh. of TCD44, farewell. Mind how you go till then. Blimey. Thank you, Nicholas Pierce and Andy Stuckey. I hope I pronounced your name right. Ain't it great to be purple in France and also in England and everywhere else? See you next week. Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production.